Welcome to the Anderson Business Advisors Podcast, the nationally recognized preferred provider for asset protection and tax planning in the nation. This show is for investors and business owners looking to save on taxes and build long-term wealth with Toby Mathis, an attorney, author, business owner, and a featured instructor at Anderson's Tax and Asset Protection event held throughout the country. Enjoy the show. Hey guys, this is Toby Mathis and uh, Jeff Webb, and you are watching Tax Tuesdays. I don't know where our little video went. I can't even see you now, but such is life, Mr. Webb. So if you guys are looking for a bunch of tax knowledge, uh, you're in the right spot. We're going to do what we always do, which is answer a ton of questions on tax topics. And there's never been a better time. This is getting towards the end of the year. This is usually where Congress does something to, to make accountants lose their hair, which is usually where they like to throw some stuff out there. And somebody says, hey, I missed the last couple. It's all right. You're here today. And this is the most important one. But we have a lot going on in Congress. You paying much attention to all the ways and means? And yeah, they're paring down some of the things they have out there. And they want to do an unrealized gain tax on the only the wealthy. But we've seen that before. So we're going to make them do mark to market. <laughs> it seems like, no, what about unrealized losses? Right. Like they don't talk about that at all. No, we just want to tax you when we want to tax you. We just want to take some things from you. That doesn't sound complicated at all. No. And it's not like they've ever done this before and then creeped it and gotten the middle class, <laughs> everybody else. Uh, anyway, hey, this is uh, fast, fun, and educational. We're going to go through a lot of questions here. If you have questions, go to the uh, the question and answer feature. There is a chat. And there is a question and answer. If you are using chat to ask your big questions, our staff will politely ask you to go put it in the Q&A because, frankly, some of you guys leave books, novels of questions. In the chat, you can respond. Like if I say right now, hey, where are you sitting right now? City and state. Go ahead and throw it into chat. See, somebody already did it. Ann Arbor. So uh, we'll get it. And we've already had some books posted. <laughs> Holy kashmoli. LA, LA, Concord. We got a bunch of Californians. Austin from Maui. Aloha. Two, there's another Hawaii, uh, Puyallup, uh, San Jose, Chicago, Phoenix. Uh, you guys are all over the place. A couple of Chicago's, Huntington. We got Honolulu. I'm so jealous. Nashville, Connecticut, Anacortes. Don, up there, Gig Harbor. So we got some Washington in the house. Seattle, fantastic. A lot of Seattle. That's in Seattle. Uh, the other Maui person would be, would be me, but I'm currently in LA. So, well, Tahoe, etc. Like we got them all over the place. New York, San Antonio, San Francisco, Arlington, Philly. What's GEG? Minneapolis. I actually grew up in Philly. So, Boston. We got a bunch of people. Tampa. So they're all rolling in. Cape Cod. We got them all over the place. So this is fun. I always like doing these when we got good groups. We get to we get to really hit on all the different uh, topics. So let's speaking of topics, let's dive into what we're going to be answering today. If I invest in a Turo car sharing business, should I put the vehicle inside the business, the cleanest, or own individually and let the business use it every weekend? If the business owns it, owns it, am I restricted from using the vehicle for personal use, or might it be covered by the fourteen day rule? So we'll go over that. Turo is Jeff's favorite topic. He's still going, what is Turo? Uh, if we purchase our shared housing properties by obtaining the financing personally, 
and then putting them each into their own for-profit RLCs and running them to the nonprofit, is there a way to expense the travel and or transaction costs when buying in different states? So we'll go over that. Fun questions today, Jeff. Are you already excited? I'm, I'm pumped. All right. We are selling an investment property using the 1031 exchange with more than $550,000 in capital gain. Can we use a replacement single family resident as our primary residence and sell it after two years and take the $500,000 gain exclusion? Good question. During the pandemic, I've been using our boat as well as our house as an office. Would I be able to claim the time on the boat as a legitimate business expense? Uh, what is the difference between admin office and home office of deduction? If I am a W-2 employee covered by a 401k, but also have an LLC for my rental property business, can I contribute to a SEP IRA as well for the business? Can a vacant lot acquired under 1031 and held eight years for appreciation be converted to private property prior to sale? I want to employ my daughter to help with my business. Where do I start? I have an LLC, but do I need it to be an escort? So we'll answer that one. Good questions. And then the last couple, can you talk about monetized installment sale? Is it still legitimate? How does it work? Last one is my daughter is a pastor and receives a housing allowance. Uh, she also has a small business. I blacked out the name of the business, which is registered in Wyoming. This business is run out of her home. Would she be able to claim a home office deduction or does the tax-free housing allowance disallow this type? Really good questions. So you ready? I'm ready. Do you like these questions I do today? Like these questions. Yeah, this isn't uh, this isn't horrible. It's always weird. Every week it seems like there's a little bit of a theme running through, and we get you know probably 400 questions on a weekly basis. I think it's it's a lot, and you just sit there in like Crystal. She said, "Has any of my questions been received?" I sent them. Yes, you should be getting a response. Somebody says, "Oh my God, Toro just." totaled my slingshot last week. Be careful. They have a lot of insurance though, Jim, right? Uh, that's pretty funny. I mean, it's not funny. It's horrible. Hopefully they're okay, but it's kind of funny that we're talking about Toro. Anyway, so yeah, we'll make sure that we get you. The team will be reaching out and uh, all that fun stuff. So that's in the chat. And then I can already see the answers. I didn't mention this, but we have a bookkeeper on. We have Elliot on as a tax attorney. I'm trying to think. I don't think we have Billy Ian Christos is on. Ian is not on. Ian's not on, but Pio's on, another CPA. We have a bunch of people there to help you. So if you have questions, shoot them on in. They're going to be answering them. I can already see them answering. So we have Dana. I see Elliot typing. Who else? We have Pio typing. I don't see anybody typing. So that's it. We are live on YouTube as well. Oh, cool. So, hey, Patty, if they ask any questions in YouTube, by all means, throw them into the question and answer or into the chat, and we will answer. Dana is on there. Yeah, I know. And Tricia from Bookkeeping. All right, let's talk about Toro. Please be sure to explain how Toro works. That's good. All right, so if I invest into a Toro car sharing business, should I put the vehicle inside the business, the cleanest, or own individually and let the business use it every weekend. If the business owns it, am I restricted from using the business for personal use or might it be covered by the 14-day rule? What say you? When I first read this question, I thought it had something to do with my lawnmower. <laughs> Jeff. This is what we call rental of personal property. So I guess we talk a little bit about the Turo business. You're actually leasing a vehicle that you own out to other people. 
unrelated to you. It's like Airbnb for cars, right? A- absolutely. They they actually kind of use a similar model for tracking it. So you just you you could put your car up and say like this weekend I have a truck. So I put my truck as a broken windshield, which one day I'm going to fix, maybe. So you have your truck and you put it on Turo and you say $200 a day or whatever it is, and somebody can rent it from you. And all you have to do is like uh, an Airbnb, they show up at your house, you let them in, or you give them a code. In Toro, you actually have to show up and give them the keys or meet them someplace. I have a neighbor that does this. And by the way, Jimmy has a slingshot too. Like I always wondered, like, why does my neighbor always have these new cars? <laughs> he's got a lot of Maseratis and stuff. I'm like, you don't need two, but he's he got a Toro business. So, so is, is Toro vetting the people who are rent, wanting to rent your vehicle? Uh, I don't think so. I think you just become a member. I'm sure there's a certain amount, and then I believe that you're. Uh, so it says they are randomly selected from the ones. Oh, that's probably Patty talking about questions. Anybody here do Toro? That's actually a Toro user. If you are, put it in chat and just say, you know, hey, what's your experience with it? You don't have to write a book, but it's essentially being able to, it's like a good side gig. If you have a vehicle that you're only using a little bit and you want to get some extra money out of that vehicle, you can put it up there and rent it. They probably charge a percentage. I don't know what the total percentage is. We used it recently, had fun, but the car had some issues. Somebody says, how do you decide? which questions submitted for Tax Tuesday. We always just pick them out. Uh, I'm a user. They don't vet people. All you have to do is submit your ID and put a credit card. Yep, it's 70-30. See, we're learning all this. Used Turo three weeks ago. Awesome experience. Got a brand new Cherokee. Paid only 60 bucks a day. Yeah, guys, because we all walk around with these computers in our pocket, you can actually, hey, I want a car. You don't need to go through Avis. Although if you go to the airport, you probably do. Yeah, so this is very similar to Airbnb, not just in the application, but even on the tax side. And that if it's a vehicle that is owned entirely by the Turo business, mm-hmm. it's much simpler to deal with than a personal vehicle that you're also using. Same way as if you're Airbnb in a, a part of your house, it gets a little more complicated because you have mixed personal and business expenses. Yep. I like the idea of the vehicle being inside the business. That's my personal preference. Commercial insurance? So Toro has a ton of insurance. I think it's a million bucks or something along those lines. It depends on the service you're using. You still have your own insurance. They'll end up covering primarily. Uh, Look at this. They're so mean. Look, these. they're so mean to me. They pick on me and they're they're all nice to you. Jeff looks so distinguished. Back to Toro, if we can, sir. Sure. All right. So they have insurance, but you should also make sure you cover insurance. My biggest worry is that you have a negligent entrustment because I have heard some horror stories of people showing up and you got the partiers in town and they want to borrow, you know, they go, you know, here's two young men, you know, in Vegas and they get the Corvette, you know, there might be an issue for you if that person ends up causing a major accident. I just get worried. I know that Toro has the insurance. So I would still put a LLC around the vehicle and make sure you're protected and isolated from your personal. Now, when you're doing business with a vehicle, it's just renting out personal property and they both fall under the passive activity loss rules. So it's no different than like rental property for real estate, right? Mm -hmm. It's a passive activity unless you materially participate. If you materially participate, it means you're the one 
who's meeting the people, handing off the keys. You're the one handling your vehicle. So I have a feeling that most people would meet one of the tests for material participation if they're doing Turo, even if they're doing it on a very seldom situation, like, like very few times a year. And the way that I would look at it is you would be the only one doing the management activities. So you would meet the first test of the seven of material participation. The other two that you would come up against would be the 100 hours and more than anybody else or the 500 hours of material participation. But as long as you're meeting that test, then if you do have losses on the vehicle, because you're going to depreciate it, you can use those against your other income. If you are using it personally, I think you do run into the personal use. If it's personal property and you just happen to be doing it on the side, I don't believe it's going to be a Schedule C business anymore. I think it's going to be online. What is it? Line 22 of page one of your 1040 of other income. I think you're going to have limitations on your loss. I think that it's going to be passive. And so it might be able to be used against other uh, other activities, but it's only going to be a proportion of the expenses. If I am setting this up as a business and somebody mentioned that they have somebody that, that has a fleet and there's, you know, let's say they have four or five vehicles, I'm probably putting the vehicles just in one business. It may be an S corp. If I'm going to make good money and I, and I am going to have distributions, then I want to make sure that I'm paying myself. If you are just doing this as a side gig, still put it in an LLC but I'd probably make it disregarded and go ahead and take that activity on your Schedule C if you are the one handing the keys off to the people, cleaning the car, things like that. I think the only time I separate the vehicles is if I'm putting a very expensive vehicle into it, to it. and more so to protect that vehicle from other mishaps rather than protect those other vehicles from that vehicle. Somebody wrote, insurance companies are excluding Turo. Also, when financing at dealerships, they're asking if you are a Turo. And if you say yes, then you can can get it financed through the dealerships. Mm. Or that if you say, and you cannot get it financed through the dealerships, that's probably it. They want a personal use. Yeah, you can't. That doesn't surprise me because we've had Christos. We were talking this morning. Between Jim and Christos, there's two totals out of maybe 10, 10 people that we know that are doing Turo. So that's like a pretty high percentage. I think people get the car and some of them are really nice cars and they don't know how to drive them and they crash them. And so Toro does cover. That's why they're probably covering the insurance. It's probably expensive as get out. But a lot of these tech companies, they don't, they're not worried about making a profit. They're just all about valuation. Anyway, so back again, you're not restricted from using it for personal use. You may just trigger a, a cap on loss and a proportionality. If it's all, if it's all used for business, then you can write it off. If it's a if it's a big piece of a, if it's like a Tesla X Model X mm-hmm. over six thousand pounds, you can write the whole thing off in year one. If it's a luxury vehicle Mustang, not over six thousand pounds, then you're going to have what you're going to be limited about sixteen thousand dollars a year, some something along those lines. Uh, I think it's eighteen thousand right now. Eighteen. So you'd write it off over a period of years. Let's say five years. But regardless, you operate it as a business, you're able to write off your, your ordinary necessary business expenses if you materially participate. If you do not, and it's just passive, you still get some of the expenses, I believe. Actually, if it's going on uh, line one, you're going to have to do miscellaneous itemized deductions mm-hmm. and they eliminated them. So you wouldn't get, you're probably going to be needing to talk to us if you're going to do it as a passive activity. Like, I cannot see anybody that I've met doing Toro that's letting somebody else manage their vehicles. 
Yeah, the 14-day rules mentioned, and that is strictly a rental real estate rule. So you, you'd still have a proportionality. Correct. Right. So you just keep track of your miles. And, and you really, if you're depreciating, especially if you're taking bonus or something like that, you want to keep use above 50%. For sure. Well, if, if again, if it's somebody doing side gig, hey, I got a vehicle, somebody pointed out that they paid 100 plus for a Hyundai. So if you have a vehicle and you're in a town where all the cars are sold out, like you're in Maui, for example, or someplace where the cars are sold out and you're like, hey, I can make 100 bucks a day, mm-hmm. 200 bucks a day off a vehicle that you're, you're, you, know, you own outright, by all means, go do it. The IRS may look at that as a hobby, which doesn't mean anything bad. It just means that you're not going to get a whole, you're not going to be able to create losses. You're limited to loss, but you could absolutely offset whatever income you get with the expenses of the vehicle and its proportionality. It could reimburse you for the miles, couldn't it? Yeah, I was just thinking about that. 57 and a half. So like a lot of these guys are going to put some miles on your car. So you're going to, you know, it's just, I think it's actually a pretty good side gig. Now that I'm thinking about it, they may just trash your car. But from what I understand, Toro actually had Christos was telling me the client got back more than the car was worth. So they do the replacement value. All right. Jumping off, we could talk about Toro all day. It's new and, you know, very few people have done it comparatively to like real estate. Let's jump in. If we purchase our shared housing properties by obtaining the financing personally, then putting them into their own for-profit LLCs and renting them to the nonprofit, is there a way to expense the travel and or transaction costs when buying in different states? You want? Can I map this out before you answer? Yes, so this is what they're talking about. There's something called a National Association of Recovery Residences, and they have a certification. And it looks kind of like this. You have a 501c3 that gets what I call NAR certification. It goes through and gets its approval. If In some states, they actually require this if you're going to get government monies for a recovery home. And then you have your for-profit, the houses out here in LLCs, and the state gives money to the 501c3, which then rents the home. That's typically how it works. The 501c3 has to receive the monies. And if you're doing any kind of recovery, whether it be transitional housing for inmates, uh, recovery residences for drugs and alcohol, you have this type of structure. It, it, It goes right on down the line. Anything where you're getting state funds from it. And uh, I'll use the example of a couple of our clients do transitional housing for uh, King County up there in Seattle. We have a bunch of Seattle folks. So King County pays them, I think it's $850 per room, and it's women, nonviolent offenders from drug crimes. So they can just, you know, they can go to the house and a parole officer can come over to the house and see 10 ladies. There's Mm -hmm. two per room, five rooms is what they want. So you have 10. So you're getting $8,500 a month for that residence which you know is actually pretty good. It's great for Seattle because it's not going to cash flow otherwise, but it's coming through the 501c3. So with that, how would you answer this? I would not expense the travel and those kind of expenses through the nonprofit. I don't see any advantage to that. I would actually expense them through the for-profit LLCs, mm-hmm. especially as they directly relate to those properties. I think that's, you, you just nailed it on the head. You're allowed to, when you have a public charity, a, a charity that is doing work that's helping people, and in this case, recovery housing clearly falls within that, uh, with, with, within the parameters of a 501c3. A lot of people know they're tax-exempt entities. They can also receive lots of grants. They can receive charitable contributions from foundations and from private individuals. 
but you are allowed to engage in transactions with it as long as it's fair market. You could literally have it to where it's just handing you the money. You don't really have to take anything from the 501c3 because it doesn't have a profit motive. Mm -hmm. It could just be there to do the certification and say, this home qualifies, go get the money from whatever county or municipality you're working in, hand the money over to the for-profit, and then Jeff's, Jeff's absolutely right. You would write off the expense, but you'd do it through the LLC, not the 501c3, unless you wanted to. Like if the 501c3 is brimming with cash, which we've seen, mm -hmm. people just dumping cash into it because they're taking the deduction every year. They love what they're doing. They're trying to create a legacy for their families. I get it 100%. Then maybe you're, you might, but I think Jeff's right. I would stick it. I would take that expense where the real estate is. And it's a lot of fun. People probably don't realize just how many different ways there are to make money in real estate. And uh, there's just so many in it. You can do a good job for other people while you're doing it. Hey, speaking of doing a good job for other people while you're doing it, we have another Infinity Investing Workshop coming up on November 6th. If you have not been to this, we go over using the, the stock market landlord methodology, and we teach you uh, the real estate side for cash flow real estate. And also, Nicole DeBrasio does a fantastic job. For those of you who don't know Nicole, she was uh, number two on The Apprentice for season six. She got fired on the last show for millions of people. But she does a really good job. She's in commercial real estate. She owns a couple of restaurants and she does a bunch of residential real estate. She does a really good job breaking down all the different ways that you can get involved in real estate these days. And don't worry, this is not a crazy, hey, in order to join, you got to pay 50,000 bucks. Infinity in, uh, Investing is free to join in the basic. If you want to go buy properties, there's a small charge, but you actually, we show you a way to get all that back. So we try to make it to where it's not taking a piece out of you guys to do it. Now, Something that we oftentimes say here, and what I'm going to, I'm going to preface this with inflation is a real thing. It's not transitory. That's a bunch of crap. The uh, U.S. Department of Labor even put out your buying power, a thousand dollars buying power from before the pandemic now costs you $1,600. It is crazy how much we are devaluing our assets. If you are not in equities and you're not in real estate, and you don't have a hedge like a crypto or even possibly a gold, although gold seems stale too, it's really going to be painful on you. So those of you who are sitting on a lot of cash, there's just no interest. They're literally printing out cash as fast as they can and giving it to people for virtually nothing, 25 basis points, quarter of a percent. So what we do is we teach you the landlord, uh, the stock market landlord methodology, and we treat the stock market no different then we treat real estate. A lot. I've been getting a lot of heat on TikTok because these knuckleheads out there that are trying to be the, you know, the next great trader, the next Gordon Gecko, are all like, you know, hey, I can make a lot of money really quick and all this stuff. I'm like, no, 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 no. Do it slowly. And they always say, well, you don't make enough. So I'm going to show you real life situation that we saw today, but I'm going to show you the principle first. Let's say that you bought a, a company at 30 bucks and it was making... 3% of a dividend. This is a dividend. And you're reimbursing that dividend every year. So reinvesting, reinvesting a drip. Yep. And we're putting it straight back in. You also had the growth of the company. This is unreal. And when they talk about unrealized gain, <laughs> this is what they're talking about. The growth of the company that you do not have to pay tax on. And I'm using 7% because that's the historic average of the S&P. The last 10 years, it's been up 13%. I'll show you those numbers too. So we're looking at that. And then if you're a landlord, 
we'll show you how to generate. It's about 10% a year on covered calls, selling it against your portfolio. But we do it very particularly and very methodically. And if you're doing it the way that we teach, what's important to note is as the value of the company grows and as the value of that dividend grows, eventually your dividend is taking a huge dent. So if I just look at the dividend down here, that dividend's taking a big dent out of this, plus my covered calls are taking a huge dent out of that cost. But we always relate it to the cost or the value of, the, of those stocks today. If I said you can generate $10, and this is 13 years on these, you know, and compared it to the cost basis, you're actually paying off your original investment about every three years, in some cases, even less. And some of you guys are looking at me going, what the heck did he just talk about? If you just do the slow, boring investing, instead of all this crazy stuff that they're teaching on cable and all these gurus are out there teaching, please don't do that. Please do the boring stuff. Because if you give it enough time, even 10 years, even at conservative numbers, and these are really conservative numbers, guys. The S&P is significantly higher. It actually gets better if I show you the 13%. It doesn't take long before you're able to pay off the original investment. It's literally every three years or less. And before you think that's impossible, here's an account that started in 2013. And in 2013, I'm just showing you this. There's no client identifying information or anything like that, but I just want you to see what it looks like they're generating distributions, $1.5 million a year, and their basis was $1 million, little over $1 million, $1,022,286. They're generating on an annual basis, just off the cash flow, off of selling the calls and off the dividends, they are generating more than what they paid for. And so as a, as a landlord, I'll just tell you, like, I bought company. Uh, properties here in Nevada after the, the bubble burst, right? Mm -hmm. We have properties here that we paid $30,000 for, $38,000 for that are worth $300,000, but they pay rents and the cash flow on these properties is, again, I would pay them off. It takes about two years is where they are right now to pay back and cover that original cost. They've literally paid for themselves in, in my situation, probably three or four times over. That's what you want. And that's what you get to. The reason I bring that up is just because it's free. Please get people out of this craziness. The inflation is going to make people do dumb things. It's also going to bring out all the carnival salesmen. So just say, whoa, 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 time out. Go here. And again, we, we invest in companies that are going to be here in 200 years. Don't want to invest in companies that don't have long-term prospects. So we don't play like no offense to some of the, the really cool growth plays out there but that's gambling. We teach you how to invest. So it's free. All right, back on to tax. We are selling an investment property using a 1031 exchange with more than $550,000 in capital gain. Can we use a replacement single family resident as our primary resident and sell it after two years and take the $500,000 gain exclusion? Jeff? The answer for this scenario is no. You cannot purchase a, a uh, principal residence through a 1031 exchange. However, you can purchase another investment property for which, what's your timeline for holding on to that investment property? Six months. And then turn it into 
your primary resident. So you have to go from an investment property to an investment property. But after you've held it for a sufficient amount of time, then you can make it your residence. Live in it for an additional two years, then take that exclusion on the gain. And you just nailed it. It's absolutely right, 100%. So you're selling an investment property. So you go investment property to investment property. You would go into a new property that's going to become your primary residence. And you can roll over the basis. Now, there's two things that are going to that, that are going to make this not as great as what you're thinking. Number one, you can't sell this property for two after two years. You have to wait five years. So, if the property was the result of a 1031 exchange, then you have a five-year waiting period. Ordinarily, you have two, but when under Section 121, it says if that property was ever used as to, it was part of a 1031 or acquired during a 1031, you have a five-year wait. Now, number two, this is the the one, and it may or may not have a huge impact on you. It's going to be a percentage of the use that was primary your primary residence versus the previous time frame from that original property on how long it was used as an investment property. And so the way it works is if I have a $500,000 gain exclusion, but half of the time before I sell it, it was, it was non-qualified use. I'm only going to get $250,000 of the exclusion. So under these facts, you're not going to have to pay tax on the $550,000, but you're also not going to get the $500,000 exclusion on that property. What you'd probably be better off doing in, I'm assuming that this is going to be continuing to grow pretty, pretty fast. If you make it your, your primary residence, you're probably going to want to do a combination. You're going to turn it back into an investment property and you're going to reinvest it in another investment property. So people, uh, I'll use, I'll probably just confuse some of you guys. Let's say I have a property that I paid $200,000 for. Now it's worth 2 million. It's in the Bay Area or something like that. And I, I'm going to, I have a $500,000 capital gain exclusion under section 121. It was my primary residence, two out of five years, yada, yada. I would have $700,000, then $200,000 a basis plus 500,000. I have 700,000. So I would still owe tax on 1.3 million. What you do in that situation is you turn it into a rental property, you rent it for six months to a year, and then you 1031 it. You still get the capital gain exclusion of 500,000. You still get your basis. Those things to mesh, your new basis is now $700,000. You would have to buy real estate. It could be multiple pieces of property if you want, but you could spend $2 million on real estate and avoid all of the capital gains. Your basis is still up, but you're not you're not going to have to pay tax on that 1.3 million, which in California would probably be about 400,000 bucks at least. So we could avoid the the tax hit on it. We've actually seen that come up more than once. And the five years starts from the time you purchase the replacement property. Yeah, the five years for the uh, for, for the 1031. Oh, for the 121. Yeah, fr- from the time that you. Yeah, purchase the replacement property. So even if it was used partially for disqualified use, mm-hmm. and then you move into it, it's still that five years, but they're going to look back and say, this period of time was disqualified. For some of you guys who say, well, wait a second, I can turn a primary residence into a rental and they don't, it doesn't affect it. That is true because they say in the previous five years, when you have the two out of five, it, the period of time between a personal primary resident and the sale they don't count that as disqualified use. So if I lived in it for two years as my primary resident, and then I rented it for five years, 
I don't have to worry about disqualified use. I'm going to get the full $500,000 in deduction. Don't you love one in 21? You guys had to do it. I had to teach that to a bunch of lawyers and there's about 13 different exceptions. And were you guys on there? I was not, but I think others were. It was just so much fun. All right. During the pandemic, I've been using our boat as well as our house as an office. Would I be able to claim the time on the boat as a legitimate business expense? There's several problems here. The first is you're allowed one administrative office. That's where you do the vast majority of your administrative work. If you're doing the work anywhere else, it disqualifies that, that home office. The second part is with the boat itself, it does not meet the exclusive use test. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has a significant personal use portion of that, probably far greater than the business use. So the boat itself would not qualify if that was your only administrative office, unless you could document that it was being used solely and exclusively as, as your administrative office. I think that you have to have a commercial, it has to be a commercial establishment on the boat. Mm. Like, I think that you could probably do it if it's a marina <clears throat> or if it's a uh, boat, Yeah. Uh, what is it called? A dealership or something. A, a brokerage could probably be on a, on a boat. Otherwise, no. What you can do, though, is you could use it as for the 280A deduction. So if you want to have meetings on the boat and just keep it that way, then you could certainly do that as long as it has sleeping quarters, a bathroom, and a uh, a place to cook. Mm -hmm. Then it qualifies as a residence. RVs and boats and and houses will qualify. And you could do your meeting there. So instead of trying to do a home office, which won't work, I can't think of a single situation where it would work, just under these circumstances, do the 280A and you're going to get back just about as much anyway. The other thing you could do is use it as travel expense, but we won't get into all that. Boats are always an interesting thing. People okay. that, people love them or they hate them. I was going to suggest entertainment expense, but that's gone too. Yeah. Bye-bye entertainment. Bye-bye. There's so many questions. So many questions. Let's see if there's anything. You exchange into a Delaware statutory trust and what are the pros and cons? Uh, yeah, you can exchange into a Delaware statutory trust. They're considered the Delaware statutory trust are kind of a weird vehicle. They're holding the real estate. You could train it, change into it. It's considered real estate, whatever it owns is considered the, the asset. So you cannot do that through an LLC. So, but a Delaware statutory trust, you could. So if you're doing a 1031 exchange, you want to park it into a Delaware statutory trust, you could, what are the cons? You're not in control. You know, somebody else is doing the real estate for you. Usually you're parking it there for a 1031. And then you're going to end up buying another piece of property, selling the deferred sales trust, uh, the Delaware statutory trust. You're going to, yeah. you're going to deferred sales trust, but you're going to sell that property and then go into another piece of property. So you're probably going to have two intermediary expenses, which, you know, sometimes they're a thousand, sometimes they're 2000. So they're not horrible. What is the difference between an administrative office and a home office? I think the way we use it, we consider the home office for Schedule C's, you're, you're reporting on uh, a specific form. That says uh, home office on top. It says home office. Uh, it's the 8825, I believe. Administrative office is actually a carve-out of the home office rules. It's particular standards that allow you to have an administrative office for your business that is not owned by your business. And again, like we talked about earlier, it's where the majority of the administrative duties are, are performed. You have to watch out for in the past, like I could be a real estate agent that has an office 
with my broker. And then I also have my home office that I don't want to do too much of that administrative side in the broker's office because it negates my... It has to be where the majority of your administrative activities take place. So we primarily use... Where most of them, all of them. Right. So I think they use the the famous term substantially all. Yeah, substantially all of your administrative activities are conducted from the administrative office in your home, which is great for people that have like Wyoming entities and things like that, because there's the principal office is in Wyoming, but where you do all your work is in your home. But if you said real estate agent, then you got to be careful. Mm -hmm. So we tend to use administrative office for entities where you're considered an employee and you're doing the work, that administrative work inside your home. It's not a home office deduction exactly, but it is a carve out that looks real identical to it. And there's two big reasons. Uh, when you do the home office on a, on a sole proprietorship, you're going to either be using the safe harbor, which is five bucks a square foot, which is diddly squat. Um, so like if you have a 10 by 10 room, you're, you're getting 500 bucks for the year. Yay. Uh, or you're going to, you're gonna you, you do the administrative office, you could do the room methodology, you could do net square footage, and it's a reimbursement. And the reason this is important is because if I reimburse Jeff, for example, for, mm-hmm. for an administrative office in his home, he doesn't have to report it anywhere. I get to expenses and nowhere does it say home office. There's nothing on the, uh, on the corporate return that says home office. There's no home office form that he has to file. There's, we always call that the red flag. You'll hear accountants say, if you're a sole proprietor, it's a big red flag. The home office is a big red flag. Well, all right. Is being the sole proprietor is the red flag. The home office is like something that they point at and go, that was wrong because they know you didn't use half your house for your business. And like, it's very unlikely. Maybe, maybe you did, but they love to tee you up. And if they see more than like 10%, the other reason that you do the administrative office in your house is because any travel between that location, let's use the real estate Mm -hmm. So let's say you're driving into Keller Williams or whatever the name of the, you know, uh, Remax or any of those places. And uh, I was going to say EXP, but they're in a virtual world. <laughs> but let's say that so I'm traveling to, I'm, I'm, what is it called? Uh, the emoji. What's the, what, what, uh, what's the term for it? You guys know what it is. Don't make fun. See, Rowena, what is it called? That my, my character, that's me. In, like your avatar? In, avatar. Yes, I knew it was a movie name. So yeah, you, you don't get to do commuting to into the Avatar. Yeah, but that'd be really cool if you have a little. I've been in the boat cruising around in the in that world. It's actually pretty cool. Uh, so I can't make fun of the XP, but they're they're actually really really cool. I love the technology. But if you're driving between a physical office, so I'm going down to my real estate office and I'm going to go meet clients, and everything else like that. Normally, I couldn't deduct it. It's commuting to your place of work, right. right? If you have an administrative office in your home and you're going to the office, get what? It's uh, you're absolutely killing it. And so Ryan says, "Have you seen their stock? It's doing good." We have some clients that were that have huge chunks of the uh, of, of EXP, absolutely fantastic. That were there years ago. I knew the uh, Ed talked to the founder. They're absolutely wonderful that retired into Puerto Rico so they don't have to pay a bunch of tax. I just, that's really cool when you're doing that, that, that awesome. So yeah, I don't make fun of any group. They're absolutely killing it. And they started in Bellingham. So they're, uh, it's right by where my mom lives. So I have to be really cool to them. They're like, yes. All right. So I think we beat that 
administrative office and home office to death. All right. If I am a W-2 employee covered by a 401k, but also have an LLC for my rental property business, can I contribute to a SEP, or, uh, SEP IRA as well for the business? What say you, Jeff? I'm going to change this question a little bit. I'm going to remove the SEP portion of it and just say an IRA. Mm-hmm. At, at that point, it depends. You say you're covered by a 401k. So it's going to depend on how much compensation you, you, you make and what your filing status is, whether or not you can contribute to an IRA. Mm-hmm. The reason I took the SEP off is that's, that's a, uh, uh, the rental property is not really a trader business. You're not getting any kind of earned income. So there's really no way to set up any kind of QRP for that rental property. You would have to, maybe if you had a corporation with a manage, uh, managing your rental properties, mm-hmm. you're draw, you need to be drawing a salary from your business somewhere. Mm-hmm. And your schedule, your rental properties is not where that would normally happen. Yeah. So to make it really simple, can you have a 401k and a SEP? Yes, but they have to be different companies. So, but you have to have two businesses yeah. here. Your W2 employee, that's fantastic. But the rental business, again, is a passive business. It wouldn't qualify to, for contributions to a, a retirement plan unless the LLC is doing like property management or perhaps it's Airbnb or something that might qualify as non-rental passive activity, Mm -hmm. non-passive activity, then we could do it. Otherwise you're sponsoring it through another active business. So if you had another corporation or LLC tax as a corporation, yeah, it could do it. And uh, there's a lot of people that say, no, you cannot do that. Yeah, it actually, technically, you know, we always always hear the 58,000 limit for contributions. It's it's per a, a 401k. So you could actually, if I work at a job here and I work, at another job here, I could have $116,000 a year that I'm putting into my 401ks. There's no pro- prohibition against that. I'd be making a lot of money, of course. But Yeah, the, the only limitation like that is on how much you can defer out of your, uh, out of your pay. Yeah. And that's a single, was it 19? $19,500 a year for deferral, employee deferral, uh, $6,500 if you're over 50. Yes. So you could put in $6,500 extra, Jeff. And I do. Thank you. Me too. All right. Follow Anderson on social media. <laughs> please like us. Not that we're uh, needy. That but kind of sad. Please like us. Please like us on social media. No, the YouTube's great. Come on out there. We've, uh, we're putting a Pia on her own, Coffee with Carl on his own. They put me on the Anderson channel. Clint's got his. Everybody's going to have their own page. Michael probably have his own page. Uh, YouTube, so interesting. We're expanding it out. I look at that. There's me. So please join us on YouTube and we're always putting content out and share it with your friends and like, and subscribe. They always tell me, don't forget to tell them to like, and subscribe. Like you can't figure that out. So please. Uh, and I'm on TikTok too. If you want to see how I get trolled by traders, it's kind of fun. I don't know why they just, they're just not very nice. All right. Can a vacant lot acquired under a 1031 <clears throat> exchange and held eight years for appreciation be converted to private property prior to sale? I'm going to ask you about this one because I couldn't think of a reason to convert it to private property before the sale. Why would you convert it to private property? Yeah, I was just looking at it going, the answer is yes, like personal property or uh, principal residence or primary residence or something. It's, it's, it's a lot. So I assume you're going to build on it and then make it into a, into a home. That's all I could think of. Otherwise, if it's land, I'm keeping it as a 1031 exchange, but I'm going to sell it. Yeah, and I have a feeling, 
Well, you really can't change the nature of the property. That is, if it's a rental. Well, this is vacant lot, though. If it's next to your primary residence, it might make sense because there is a way to ten uh, to do a 121 exclusion on your primary residence in a vacant lot next to it. If it's not, then probably not. I would, I'd say you keep it as a 1031 exchange. But uh, great job, eight years for of appreciation. I appreciate your appreciation. And uh, you can 1031 it. You're somebody's dad, aren't you? Yes. <laughs> dad humor. I want to employ my daughter. This is dad humor right here. <laughs> I want to employ my daughter and help her with, to help with my business. Where do I start? Have children. I'm just kidding. I have an LLC, but do I need it to be an escort? No, you do not. Mm-hmm. Any entity, including a sole proprietorship, can have payroll. And technically, a sole proprietor is easier. Yeah. S-Corp, you run through payroll. Sole proprietor, you don't have to do withholding if it's your, uh, if it's your child and they live with you, right? Uh, yeah, it's got to be a minor child under 17. Something like that. Yeah, yeah if it's a kid. And as far as the age, we've seen kids as, as young as nine. I mean, I've seen people do younger. They use them for uh, photography and advertising and things like that. But realistically, they need to be able to do something other than just look cute. So if your kid and your, I'll say your daughter works for you and you have an LLC tax as a sole proprietor, you could do it. LLC tax as a partnership, you could do it. LLC tax as an S-corp, you could do it. Mm-hmm. LLC tax as a C-corp or a C-corp, S-corp or partnership or sole proprietor. So all of those will work. And uh, it makes sense because they have a very low tax rate. There'll be zero up to the standard deduction, which right now is what, 12,500 for a single, and probably is going to go up a lot with inflation doing what it's doing. Like that's index for inflation. So that'll probably go up pretty darn close to 13,000. So, hey, look, it's YouTube again. So by all means, come in. A lot of this talk, all this stuff is up there. And what I'm doing a lot of times, I grab the questions and I might just go and deep dive on one of the questions. Can you talk about monetized installment sale? Is it still legitimate? And how does it work? I'd like to sum up the IRS's position on this. No. Yeah, they, they came out with a publication on May. May, yeah. And they said, here's the six reasons monetized installment sales do not work, but it still could work. It's weird. Their big argument was, I believe, this is nothing more than a step transaction. It is. A All the stuff that you have in the middle mean is meaningless. Mm-hmm. We're going to look at where you started and where you ended up and say, no, we're going to collapse this. So, I, so we do have a client. They have another advisor. They sold 80 plus properties on installment sales with a firm, law firm, handling the transactions. Mm-hmm. So they may be okay because they're, it's not a business of that firm. They actually went out and shopped and they found somebody who would do the loan. Really what you're doing is you're selling it on an installment sale that you're going to receive the income on and somebody's bar is loaning you the money and you're using the installment payments to pay off whoever's borrowing it. So I'm selling it. Somebody steps in between the transaction of the seller and says, I'll, I'll take the money and they'll pay you on an installment sale. And I believe that the, the lender is either purchasing or there's a transaction there where the lender is then loaning you the money based off of that asset probably right. your underlying security of that asset so that the lender knows they're going to get paid back. They loan you the money. Instead of you taking the money directly from the seller, mm-hmm. you've now muddied the waters with two other parties. 
this person's paying you on an installment sale, you're paying this person over here on an installment sale. And it's just a big circle. But what it does is it allows you to recognize the gain over, in some cases, 30 years, depending on how long you put that installment sale. So you're going to have return of basis, no tax, depreciation recapture, which is going to be zero to 25. You're going to have long-term capital gain. You're going to have interest, but you're also going to have a payment of interest. If that's really exciting for you, go do it. But uh, They're also known as a, you said it before, deferred sales trust. Deferred sales trust, a little bit different animal because 100% of the money is going into the trust. You want to go over deferred sales trust? I don't want to steal your no, thunder. Oh, I'm good. All right. So, so let's say that, that Jeff's my child and I have a business that's worth you know over $10 million. I'm going to say, use that as kind of a break even. So I go ahead and I have this, I set up a trust for Jeff's benefit. The trust goes ahead and buys my business and does it under an installment sale. It has to be an arm's length transaction. So you're usually going to have a separate trustee and they say, all right, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to pay. I'm going to sell my business to the trust. The trust is going to pay me a uh, installment sale over a period of years where I should be able to live long enough. So you're going to have to do my my life expectancy table to make sure that it matches because a lot of times people are doing this later in life. So if I have a 15-year life expectancy, I'd want to do a 15-year installment note. I step up the basis in it. So usually I use an LLC, sell the LLC that holds the properties, that holds my company. I step up the basis inside the LLC. LLC sells it to third party. All this money comes into the trust, zero tax because the basis has been stepped up. All that money is now going to go to Jeff's benefit and I'm getting the installment sale. Makes sense? I just transferred everything to Jeff in a way. They're very technical and I would, I would only go to firms that just do deferred sales trusts. My daughter is a pastor and receives a housing allowance. She also has a small business. I blacked out the name, which is registered in Wyoming. The business is run out of her home. Would she be able to claim a home office deduction as the tax-free housing allowance disallow this type? Yeah, but we know their name is, still has LLC in it. Mm-hmm. So, no, it, it doesn't make your... I'm giving um, you a look, by the way. Okay. You're, you're somebody's. You're somebody's it, it's something. probably the same one the girlfriend gives me. So, <laughs> so no, this it wouldn't make your uh, housing allowance taxable. It kind of works the opposite way, and that anything that the housing allowance, if I'm using my housing allowance to pay for my mortgage or mm-hmm. rent, my property taxes, utilities, I can't deduct any of that stuff under my home office. Mm-hmm. So I think what you're going to find as as housing allowance, it's not going to be taxable, but but it's going to really restrict how much you can deduct under the home office. Yeah, you get into this weird, uh, when you do the administrative office for your home, you could possibly do that, but it's based off of how much expense you actually have. So if you have a parsonage, this is actually called a parsonage allowance. It's section 105 of the code. So if you're a pastor, you could have the church could provide you housing. You don't have to recognize it as income. So you get a house, cool. And then you go and you say to another business, hey, you need to reimburse me for my cost of my mm-hmm. business. Well, most of those items are like the rent you pay or your mortgage, real estate tax, but there is utilities. There's also cleaning, repair, anything that's coming out of your pocket, you could reimburse a portion of, depending on how much space you're using. So the home office deduction, not necessarily. I would call it an administrative office for the home for a secondary business 
And it's going to do, again, two things. It's going to give you a little bit of money in your pocket that you don't have to report, but it's also going to make any time you drive to that other business or whatever you're doing, like maybe it's real estate or something else and you have to drive, it makes that tax deductible. You can get reimbursed mileage deduction. I think it's, is it 57 and a half? Yeah, I think so. That's going to have to go over 60 cents. A, like with, with gas here is like five bucks a gallon. Anyway, I saw some question for you though. Uh-huh. The daughter that's the pastor probably has a pastoral office in her home that she works out of. Mm-hmm. This is if she wants to have a, another office, would you separate those offices? I think you technically can have two. Okay. I believe. We looked at this once before. I didn't know, know the answer to this. That's why I'm asking. I don't remember. <laughs> Somebody said, William. Going back to the child doing work for parents, what paperwork do you need is a 1099 issue. No, actually, for the child, it's actually payroll. So it's technically you don't have to do withholding. So it's a W-2. Yeah, you do a 1099, you're guaranteeing you're going to have to pay taxes. They're going to have to pay self-employment tax. Yeah, Yeah, but you don't have to do any of the withholdings. They still have to pay self-employment tax then on that, don't they? They have to pay self-employment tax on the uh, 1099 but not on the W-2. On the W-2, they don't even have a requirement because I know the, kid, right. the parents don't have to withhold, but are you are you released from the obligation to have to pay it? Because yes. I'm still an employee I, I, doing active. Uh, but I think if they meet the age requirements. And then all, there's no, yeah. There, there's both the employee and the employer except from paying those payroll taxes. I think you're right. I think that, so that would be one big difference if you're an escort paying the child. The good news is if they're an escort paying the child, you can go right into a retirement plan, so. Yeah, so, so so the income tax would be zero and 1099 versus payroll. Mm-hmm. It's just that that 1099 also has that self-employment. Right. So we don't tax. want to, we don't want a 1099. So you want to do it as a as a minor child. All right. Oh gosh, we're back to infinity. Yeah. So register for the Saturday, November 6th Infinity Investing Workshop. It is here's the link. We always have a lot of fun. You're gonna learn how to trade in the stock market. By the way, Infinity has every week three basic trading rooms open where you can come in and trade with our instructors for nothing, zero zilch. All you have to do is join up with Infinity Investing. We want to help you guys make money. People always say, why do you answer tax stuff for free? And why do you teach people how to make money for free? And I was like, well, I don't know. It's fun. So hopefully you guys do really, really well. And then you hire us to teach you how to keep it. See? So... We're barbers and we want your hair to grow really fast. So uh, that's why we do it. Anderson Advisors podcast. You can go in and listen to a ton of stuff from Clint, from Michael, from Jeff here, from Elliot, uh, Carl, Pia, Amanda. There's just so many people that are putting out good content for things that can help you keep more, save more. Uh, And then as always, send us your questions. Tax Tuesday at AndersonAdvisors.com. Come to our website, check it out. Something said SSD income taxable. So Ron is saying social security income taxable. Yeah. Somebody says, wow, you're really going to end this one. We're just slightly over Sherry. Do you have a a tracker? I I actually cut down the questions. I was like, Jeff's always mad at me because it used to be way worse, but this is good. So anyway, there's still... Uh, there's still some questions out there. We answered 118 written questions. We have 19 still out there. And, oh, is, is my social security taxable? Social security, you said SSD, social security disability. That is not taxable. 
Well, if you make over a certain amount. Yeah, I, th- I think it's th- I think it's still taxable the way regular Social Security is. So if you're making too much money elsewhere. But Ron, that's a good question to submit and we'll get it answered and make sure it's, it won't take long to figure that one out. Just in case we're wrong. Yes, in case Jeff's wrong, because I have no idea. I've looked it up before, but I also know that every time I look things up, sometimes I'm like, oh, wow, and things change. So by all means, send us your questions. If, you're, if, if you've asked a written question, hang tight, because our guys will still answer them. Even if we uh, discontinue the presentation, you can still stay on and get your questions answered and ask questions. And uh, we'll make sure that we get you all squared away. Ron, I get it. Your wife also has some income. We'll, we'll, we'll take a peek at it. Just submit the question. And we'll make sure we get you an answer. And uh, until next time, guys, thanks for joining us. And thanks, Jeff. Thank you, Toby. And uh, we will see you. Have a great Halloween if you guys uh, don't get too scared and don't eat too much candy. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Show notes for links to everything mentioned in this episode can be found on our website at andersonadvisors.com slash podcast. Be sure you subscribe to our podcast. And if you are already a subscriber, please provide us a review of what you thought of this episode.